0: It's like solving a jigsaw puzzle. Biology gives you some set of hints, and your model gives you a full set of computations. And then it's a question of, how do you map these computations? We had to put in there because that's the only way to make the model work. And then Mm -hmm. when we worked back from that to see where it would fit, there was no place to fit it other than in the thalamus.
1: This is Brain Inspired. Hey, it's Paul. Once again today, I have Dilip George on. uh, Because last time he was on, we ran out of time to talk about what he's uh, back today to talk about. And that is his recent work that maps his model for visual inference onto the circuitry of the cortical column in combination with the thalamus uh, to account for the function of the loops of connections between the cortex and thalamus. The model I just mentioned is what we discussed in previous episodes with Deleep, which he calls a recursive cortical network, which is a generative probabilistic graph model for inferring the best explanation for visual evidence presented to the model. In this case, the RCN model, the recursive cortical network model, was adapted to account for the corticothalamic circuitry. Uh, And the way it turned out, Delete thinks of cortical columns as little belief machines uh, about some feature or concept about the world that you're perceiving. And the belief is informed by uh, sensory input, by top-down attention, and the context of everything else that's going on at the time or in the same scene. All that information goes into a vote on whether to believe the feature or concept that the cortical column stands for uh, should be present in your perception. So, um, I'm I'm either on or I'm off. Uh, You do see an edge there or you don't, for instance. This model gives the thalamus uh, a crucial role for explaining away evidence Uh, for other interpretations, as information gets processed up the hierarchy of vision. So we discussed the model and its functioning in more detail, and we compared a little bit with Randy O'Reilly's ideas about the thalamus providing a predictive learning mechanism uh, from a few episodes ago when Randy was on. Show notes are at brandinspired.co slash podcast slash 93. If you value the podcast and can afford a couple bucks a month, consider supporting it on Patreon, Often I include extra bits of these regular episode conversations, and every once in a while, I'll post a bonus episode. Uh, and I'm almost to the point now where I can start using some of the funds from the Patreon support to pay for a little help with things like editing and transcripts, um, which would help immensely. Anyway, Deleep won't be back on for a while, but he's always fun to talk with, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. Catherine! It's Deleep again! George, Vicarious. Yeah, can you come do your thing again? Okay. Okay, she's on her way. Here, hang on. Previously on Brain Inspired. Thanks for coming on the show again, and we'll talk soon again. So I appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Paul. Thanks a lot for having me, and I hope I will come back a bit, a, again
1: before two years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so Dalip, here we are. <laughs> Welcome back. Yes. <laughs> uh great to be
0: back. And uh, it hasn't been 2 years, it has been just a few weeks I think.
1: Only a few weeks, but I know of uh, at least two things that have happened uh during that time. One, how was your RV trip? How was your first ever RV trip?
0: Oh, that was so much fun. Um the kids loved it. Um and <laughs> it was uh it was just one night of RV camping, but you know, the the whole experience was uh fun for me it was first time driving a big truck basically and uh, uh, and then it was just get good to get out for a few days oh it,
1: yeah. yeah especially especially these days yeah can you imagine so you did it for one night uh, i did it for a year and a half although we had a we we towed a fifth wheel which is like w- the big ones that you tow you know in a we had to buy a monster truck and stuff do you think you could handle a year and a half with the with the kids and everyone in there in, in wow. that little space. So you did
0: uh, <laughs> a year and a half with uh, in an RV with kids.
1: Yeah, that and I'm still. Have... I mean, I'm basically bald now, so I mean, it's.
0: <laughs> I would love to do that actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, maybe you should. Maybe we should talk before you just sell all your stuff and move into an RV like we did. But, yeah. Um, but... <laughs> anyway, I'm glad glad to hear that you got out and that it was fun. The other thing that that happened is that uh, you published this nice review in Frontiers, that details, you know, really your overall approach, but also, um, you know, is based on the recursive cortical networks that we've talked about a few times here already on the podcast. Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, obviously I'll, I'll link to that uh, review. It's a great review, by the way. Um, and I'll just I have a few questions here related to that before we really get started. Okay. Um, so one of the things that you know you lay out. What we mentioned what you mentioned and described in the, in our in the last episode um, this triangle strategy that you employ for building AI uh, basically you you use in parallel cognitive and neuroscience observations and you match those with uh, in parallel with computational algorithms and principles, and you match all of that uh, with the third node of the triangle, which are uh, properties of the real world and that 's a little bit reminiscent of Mars levels of uh, analysis, and I had a. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I had a, a listener question mm-hmm. um, about you trying to understand how the brain works. Yeah. The question is, how do you define the levels of abstraction uh, of the description of the brain, uh, and and what level are you working at in particular? So I just will throw it throw it to you.
0: Yeah. Um, the tricky part here is that you cannot. Uh, define a level of physical abstraction in the brain you cannot you cannot uh, think of you' are operating at neuron level column level or synapse level or you cannot make any physical cutoff like that uh, because uh, if you make a physical cutoff like that and if you're overall system needs a mechanism that is below that level then you will be missing that out and uh, and that's why we don't describe it in terms of a physical abstraction level like a cortical column or anything like that in the brain and it's more you look as deep as you need to uh, but you uh, ignore irrelevant things at any level any physical level uh, of abstraction um so if something at the cortical column level is irrelevant for information processing, you ignore that. It is So this triangulation strategy is more for figuring out what is important for information processing at any physical level of implementation uh, versus and what is not relevant for information processing.
1: Great. So ho- hopefully that satisfies the... Uh uh jeff okay last question about this review uh, and again I'll, I'll point people to it but um so in vicarious the, the goal is to build agi and one of the things that you write about uh is why why are we calling it agi why not uh a as in artificial uh human intelligence or uh and then so you make that distinction between artificial human intelligence and artificial general intelligence and then you add in artificial universal intelligence. Yeah. So <laughs> how do you think about these things? What, 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 what is all that? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. So we need a term
0: to refer to building of intelligence models after the human brain. And people have been calling it artificial general intelligence for a while. But there is some confusion. Um, and this confusion can be because of uh, p- uh, books like Super Intelligence being written where um, what is imagined is an arbitrarily powerful entity which would just instantaneously learn everything and take over the world and convert everything to paper clips etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, yeah. but uh, such things uh, are do not exist there are fundamental limits on what even a general intelligence will be able to do how quickly it will be able to learn new things how quickly it will be able to um, disentangle the causal mechanisms, in the world so that it can uh, make decisions and drive actions. So those fundamental limits will always put a, you know, uh, there is a constraint on how quickly something can learn and act in the world. Um, So those are not constrained in this mythical super intelligence uh, setting. So that's why I call it some arbitrary artificial universal intelligence, which is, which is uh, like perpetual machines. You know, you can imagine something like that existing, but, it w- violates the laws of physics and uh, it, it uh, cannot exist. So that, that's the thing I put in artificial universal intelligence as, you know, something that exists only in our imagination cannot be really built. Um, so then some people, you know, since people were mischaracterizing general AGI as this AUI, some people, uh, started basically saying that, oh, it should be just called, uh, human intelligence, not, uh, AGI. Right. Um, But the problem there is that that also doesn't solve the problem because, you know, are you going to model exactly like human intelligence? Like, are you going to put in uh, the working memory limitations that we have uh, just because, you know, we we have some hardware limitations? Um, So are you going to impose all the arbitrary constraints that might be there on our own uh, intelligence? Um, Are you not going to wire a Google search directly into the prefrontal cortex if you could? so it's basically whenever we are going to build something based on human intelligence, but on a different substrate, it will be more general than human intelligence, just because of the way we are building it. So you you can think of, oh, I want to model human uh, intelligence exactly and try to build it, but you will end up building something that is more general. So that's why I like the term artificial general intelligence. It is not some arbitrarily universal intelligence, and it is not exactly trying to replicate. Uh, human intelligence uh, with all its limitations so that's why i like the term agi as something general intelligence model after the human brain i,
1: I like that too and, and it's not subject to the same constraints physically uh you know or or just capacity wise uh as well so i wonder so then so you kind of have a, have a hierarchy there's artificial human intelligence and then above that is artificial general intelligence and the limiting fictional idea theoretical is artificial universal intelligence So then, below the human intelligence, what is that? Where is that? Is that me? Where am I? (laughs) So, is there a term for that?
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, uh,
1: computers or something. uh, I
0: I would call them specialized intelligences. Okay. Um, Oh, good.
1: There's all the specialized (laughs) stuff. That's pretty good. Okay. All right. So, um, anyway, I enjoyed the uh, the review paper because it lays out. I mean, like I said, it, just, it lays out your approach and, and gives examples that, that we've talked about already on the podcast and that are in all these papers, so uh, yeah. in a very easily digestible manner.
0: Hey, glad you liked it.
1: So, uh, Vicarious, I've, I have just a couple things on Vicarious, and then we're going to get into the meat of this thing, okay? Okay. Doing things in general and, you know, creating startups, for instance. So, you know, it seems like 99% of startup ideas begin with the wrong idea. And you were talking about how important it is to listen to customers, and that's how you know it kind of shapes what you're building—not only the specifications uh, and the technical information, but the kind of things that you're making. And so I'm—I'm wondering, you know, does it even matter? How much does it matter what idea you start with, given that it's going to change probably dramatically?
0: Well, uh, it matters in terms of uh, what is the skill set of people you are bringing in, uh, and uh, what are your Key people in the company. As long as um, whatever you are uh, changing to uh, fits within the skill set of what those people can build, uh, mm. then I think it will be reasonably fine. Um, it will be very hard to pivot to something that is totally outside the scope of them. Like that will be almost like starting a new company.
1: Do you think that's why a lot of startups fail? I mean, most startups fail for various reasons, but. Do you think that might be an underlying reason that when people have to, quote unquote, pivot, then their team or their technical s- skills aren't up to par for whatever the the end goal is at that point?
0: I mean, there are multiple, multiple reasons, right? And depends yeah. on um, the different stages of the uh, company. Um, so at early stage, what I've seen are um, things falling apart sometimes just based on um, disagreements between the founders they just you know w- try to work for a few mm. months together just didn't pan out they want to go in different directions so at the very early stage when it is two or three people in a garage kind of sitting it can it can fall apart because oh just didn't uh, gel to work working together uh, so that's you know one reason and and often it is just finding that core team that will stick it through which is the hard part, uh, you know, getting a mm. uh, g- uh, getting a co-founder and and or um, a key employ- uh, employee number one which becomes super important in the company. That that core team clicking together uh, can be a challenge, and uh, so that's a lot of ideas fall apart right at that stage, and then right, um, and then it is you know the the different gates uh, uh, that you have to pass through, uh, you know, seed, series A, series B, etc. So. And and things can fall apart at the seed stage, where uh, oh, you just the idea does not get any traction at all. Uh, where you talk to multiple people and just cannot raise any uh, any money, and you might bootstrap it for some time, but if it's not getting customer traction, or if it is an idea that actually requires capital to get cap you know customer traction, then it, it will fall apart at that at, at that stage. Then uh, later on uh what can happen is that you know companies can scale too quickly uh, because um you always want to scale because there is a perceived customer demand but if you if you scale too quickly and then the customer demand doesn't materialize in time that's you know something can go wrong in later in the life cycle um then scaling too slowly sometimes can also be bad. <laughs> so you
1: because, make it sound so fun, man.
0: <laughs> because yeah. then somebody else scales faster than you. when, uh, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. so, uh, yeah. So there are many, many things that can, uh, uh go wrong. Um, we know the Kosla uh, has a nice analogy, um, uh, uh, for uh, what startup life is like, right? It's basically, he's saying it's, like jumping off an airplane and uh, building a parachute on the way down oh. uh, and, and, and then uh the goal is to basically just um not hit the ground
1: oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Note. Note to self. Delip does not suggest starting a startup. No, okay, it's it's fun.
0: It's still like <laughs> skydiving fun. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. There you go. There's the plus side of it. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, that's great. So you've you've made it. You've built your own parachute. Uh, you know, it seems like you're uh, or a hang glider, even maybe. I don't know what you you've built, but you've done a a really nice job so far. So anyway, con- continued success, of course, with Vicarious. Thank you. But uh what we're really here to talk about today is. The second of uh, two recent papers, the, the first of which we uh, talked about last time, so, so the second one is all about, well, I'll just read the title, A Detailed Mathematical Theory of Thalamic and Cortical Microcircuits Based on Inference in a Generative Vision Model. And I'll, I'll just kind of introduce it here, and then you can correct me, and, we can, and then we can get into it. So the neocortex uh, seems important for our general intelligence, um, however narrow that generality may be, as we were, you know, sort of just discussing. Uh, You have argued that the cortex is, you know, on the one hand, you know, the the important thing to understand. Um, But on the other hand, that, uh, you know, it's it's the easier bit of brain to understand because the rest of the brain is so complex and specialized, honed through eons of uh, evolution. Okay, so, so cortex, um, just to bring everyone to, up to speed, is this big sheet made up of a repeated architectural motif, what's called the cortical column or microcircuit, uh, which is repeated throughout the cortex fairly uniformly, but with variation. Uh, but, it, you know, it's the basic uh, organization is similar uh, across cortex. And you've argued that if we knew what it was doing, as many have, that we could apply that and, and then take us a, a big step forward, not only in understanding our own, uh, human intelligence, but in, in building artificial intelligence. And there are many theories of which you have, you know, worked on already. Uh, but they're based on sort of two, I would say main approaches. One approach is to think of cortex as sort of a feed forward, bottom up series of hierarchical processing. So going from like these simple, to more complex and abstract uh, representations. So like in vision, that would be going from like lines and edges, building up to, uh, all the way up to an image that you can identify, an object like a, the face of, uh, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln, someone famous, right? The other approach, the one to which you uh, subscribe, is to think of cortex more as a top-down inference engine, which creates uh, generative models of possible worlds uh to then best explain the data that is that is coming in to our senses. Am I am I on point so far here?
0: Yes. You are exactly yeah. on point. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do I have to say anything at all here?
1: <laughs> no, no. Just just, just by the listen. way, Deleep's on a Deleaf's on a treadmill. This is great. He's uh, this is the first time someone's exercised during the podcast. I love it. So
0: <laughs> it, it's it's great to be standing and uh, walking while talking.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I should get a treadmill because I, I I do I use a standing desk. OK. Um, anyway. All right. So so <laughs> I'm going to continue here. So most focus has been on the canonical cortical microcircuit asking, you know, what does that column do? What does that cortical microcircuit do? Uh, but of course, cortex doesn't act alone in the brain. It's highly interconnected with lots of other brain areas um, in these complicated loops between cortex and, and the other brain areas one of which is the thalamus. And the role uh, or roles of the thalamus has been uh, debated for many a year now. Um, it was originally thought you know, just to be a relay from our sense organs to the rest of the, the cortex. And it does do that. But, uh, but more recently, it's been thought that it's played a role in attention and the regulation of information flow um, in between cortical areas and from our senses uh, to, to those cortical areas so the circuitry and the loops between the thalamus and the cortex um have led you know some people to kind of rethink the canonical microcircuit computation right what it, what is the canonical microcircuit actually computing um so to move beyond just cortex and it actually involved uh, involved the thalamus so i had randy o'reilly on recently and he has this uh, deep predictive learning model uh where there's a feed forward projection to the thalamus from uh uh from cortex and a feedback projection to thalamus from cortex and the idea and this happens uh in the pulvinar, for in the visuals at least in the visual system um this these feed forward and feedback connections join together in the, the, pul- the pulvinar and act like a you know predictive learning mechanism in the mm-hmm. style of this top down predictive coding inference approach yeah and and so and i I only say that because um I mean, you know, this conversation that we're having is is basically the closest thing that uh that we've talked about on the podcast uh to that is is Randy's predictive um learning mechanism here. Okay. So that brings us up to speed. Now, sort of up to speed. So you had these recursive cortical networks that you've been working with for years. Yeah. And you realized that they could be implemented with networks of neurons and you realized that you could map the computational uh properties and the flow of these RCNs onto the cortical column. And thus, the bio RCN was born. Yes. And all right, so uh, I'm going to hand it over to you. So um, I, we've done this already multiple times, but just a really broad overview. Let's just recap what uh, recursive cortical networks are and what you've used them for in the past. Yeah.
0: So recursive cortical networks are a hierarchical generative model for vision, um, it builds a hierarchy from parts uh, for line segments at the bottom, going all the way to uh, object-level models at the top, and these are all uh, encoded as a probabilistic graphical model. And When a new piece of evidence comes in, like a scene of characters or scene of objects, this um, model can parse that scene as best explanation under the model, Uh, and we used it for cracking CAPTCHAs, you know, defeating their fundamental defense, uh, and also we use it uh, regularly in our robotics tasks for cluttered bin picking, uh, detecting boxes, um, all those things. So it's a, it's a it's a uh, vision model that can be used for object recognition, for foreground background segmentation, for estimating pose, for generating from the model, for occlusion reasoning. Um, so it's a, it's a unified generative model on which uh, the different uh, tasks are. Just different queries on the model, rather than having to train specifically for the task.
1: Yeah, having to retrain the model like a deep learning network that you'd need to retrain for every task. Right. I mean, there might be some generality between tasks, but in general, you'd have to retrain it. Yeah. All right. Good. So, um, so like I said, you you've taken those RCNs and um applied them to um, a cortical column and developed the bio RCN. And one of the nice things about um, applying this to a cortical column is that because you already had the the theory, basically, of the RCN, it makes very specific biological predictions of what needs, like what kind of connections there need to be, and what kind of cells need to be involved, and precise uh, inhibitory and excitatory interactions, and the way that this works. Is, so, so well, maybe maybe you can uh, elaborate on that just a little bit. Um, okay, so so one thing is that
0: you know when we built RCN uh, originally we were looking at the brain for insights um we were looking at visual cortex for insights to say what kind of structural constraints need to exist in the model uh, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, so it is not surprising that we will be able to map it back uh, because we, we started with um, the insights from the brain but but the insights from neuroscience are clues all right they for example um, yeah. the idea that surfaces and uh, edges are represented separately, but in an interacting way that that is an idea that uh, came from neuroscience and we triangulated it to some algorithmic principles and properties of the world. But then how exactly it gets implemented in, in the graphical model, um, that is something we develop in the context of everything else that we are building. So we are the, the mathematical model that we are building is filling in a lot of the details based on. Uh, hints from uh, neuroscience. So that, mm. um, and the good thing about the final model that it's built is it it is functionally complete. Even though it is partial functionality, it is not doing everything that visual cortex is not, uh, doing, and not to the level of uh, performance that the visual cortex is doing. But at least it is it is complete. It is it is doing the whole thing of parsing a scene and recognizing characters, all those things. So it is it's a uh, complete functional model. Uh, so now that means it fills in a lot of the details that are not available. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, initially at uh, biology. So now we can go and map map back these computations to um, the cortical lamina and columns. And again, there, information from anatomy and physiology, um, all, all the experimental data act as constraints in that mapping. So you know that, for example, um, feedforward input from the thalamus um, mostly lands on layer four in in the um, in, in the cortical uh, lamina, uh, and and if if that falls on layer four, then the out you know that you, if you place that computation there, you know that the next set of computations, uh, which are dependent on the projections from layer four to layer two three, there is only one place to put that right. So because right. <laughs> the, uh, so it, it's like solving a jigsaw puzzle. Biology gives you some set of hints, and. Your model gives you a full set of computations, and then it's a question of how do you map these computations, and you anchor them based on known uh, data from uh, biology. That those becomes your anchoring points, the the corner pieces of the puzzle, and then uh, the rest of it is just uh, get gets filled in based on those constraints imposed by these anchoring uh, pieces of data from biology.
1: Good. One of the things that uh, you do is, so, so in the RCN, it's a probabilistic graph model. Um, each node in the RCN, when you break it into uh, biology, is sort of broken into groups of neurons. So each, uh, each node kind of represents groups of neurons that then you break down mathematically and computationally how they interact and compute uh, and, send, and then send projections to other nodes that are made of other groups of neurons that do different uh, computations. So we'll bring Thalamus in here in just a bit, but uh let's start with the the cortical uh microcolumn. Yeah. You you fashion the cortical microcolumn as a binary random variable. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, so what does that mean?
0: Um yeah, so so one uh pleasing thing out of this mapping is that it gives us a tool to think about uh cortical microcolumn. So you can think of a cortical microcolumn as representing A feature or a concept, Um, so it can be a cortical microcolumn represents an edge or a character uh, A uh, at a a higher level, and then so what do those different uh, lamina in the cortical uh, column do? They are all talking about the same feature. They you know they are all talking about this one thing, uh, whether it's edge or uh, a character, but they are talking about different aspects of that thing. Um, So it could be. Uh, how does this edge participate in lateral connections with other edges in the same level? Uh, How does this edge um, decompose itself into smaller edges? Uh, Or how does this edge compose itself in a hierarchy with a a corner uh, in the next level uh, in, in, in the vertical? And these different aspects, the participation of that feature in different aspects, whether it is laterally, hierarchically, sequentially, etc. All these different aspects get represented in different cortical laminate. And then um, finally, there is this um, need for computing the belief, the final belief uh, that each cortical column needs to say, am I on or off uh, as part of the overall coherent thing that uh, uh, the visual cortex is trying to explain? When when Am I part of the best explanation for the scene or not? And that is the belief whether that cortical column is finally on or off. Uh, And that requires integrating information from uh, bottom-up evidence, lateral evidence, top-down evidence, sequential evidence, all of them. And all of them are finally combined into uh, a signal saying, am I on or off? And so that is represented in another lamina. So, So this mapping uses this conceptual tool to think about what a cortical column is doing.
1: Just to give a really coarse sort of cartoon of this, uh, it could be that, um you know, in one layer, let's say uh you know layer projections coming into the layer four saying uh i'm an I'm an edge, uh I have edge properties, and then the projections up to layer two, three is like you're an edge, but you're near a surface uh and and I'm gonna vote on that, and then projections the it gets like the context from lateral layers uh and so then you have layers one through six sort of all voting on their specific contextual votes about this one property of the edgeness and yeah. and then all together they vote on on the whole the thing as a whole correct that's that's perfectly done yes okay <laughs> okay so um uh, I, I mean is it useful sh- sh- should we break down the different roles of the different laminae, or you know is that maybe too f- too fine-grained i don't know
0: no we could um so um we could at least try so so one thing. Um, you know, this brings up is that when you measure it the right way, all the all the neurons in a cortical column will tend to have the same receptive field, and and this is of mm-hmm. course observed, right? Uh, but all, also, you will see that the receptive fields will change based on the context. So initially, when you if you are measuring it based on purely bottom-up evidence and just power it through, you will you will see that all the different laminae, Neurons in all the different laminae have the, the same classical receptive field. But then, depending upon which lamina they are in, and depending on what contextual computation they are doing, their classical receptive field can change into something more dynamic and, uh, mm-hmm. and something that depends on extra columnar input or the inputs that are not directly bottom up for that column, but based on lateral or top down inputs. So uh, if we go lamina to lamina, so in the mapping, um layer 4 is of course a uh, feed forward input uh layer 2 3 has uh, multiple roles one is uh, computing um, the lateral connections for contour continuity uh, and the other is uh, pooling just like in a complex cell uh, pooling information for uh, invariant representation uh, and and then projecting to uh, the next higher level and then layer 5 which is below layer 4 is um Pretty much doing the same computations as layer two, three, but now that layer also includes feedback from above. So, um, in, in this mapping, as you mentioned it before, um, every, every node in the probabilistic graphical model needs to have multiple copies in, in a neurobiological implementation because you need to have, uh, messages going in different directions being represented by different set of neurons, um, because neurons are not bi-directional. And that's why the same computation, uh, which happens in the feedforward pathway is also kind of replicated in the feedback pathway because um, mm-hmm. you know, one is using purely feedforward information, the other is using a combination of feedforward and feedback information. So layer five is lateral connections and unpooling. Uh, so that uses um, the combination of feedforward and feedback information. Uh, and in layer five, also a sub-lamina of layer five is involved in belief computation which uses both feed-forward, feedback, laptop, all those things together. And then layer six is uh, computing feedback messages to send to uh, the children. So that's the rough breakdown. All
1: right, good. Yeah, um, everybody memorized that? All right. So, yeah, <laughs> it's nice. It's in the paper. Um, um, I mean, I'm just going to start, you know, listing interesting things as we go through here, to, you know, things that are interesting to me. So um, copies. So the clonally-related uh, excitatory neurons um, are copies to participate in, in different lateral and, and hierarchical contexts um so so when cortex is developing th- these clonal neurons are they, they all come from like the same neuron essentially when when these neurons are being created and that 's what 's referred to i believe as as um, these clonal neurons and uh so what role do do these copies or clones play uh within the processing
0: um so this is um an interesting aspect that kind of falls out of the model and and the mapping uh, it produces to biology I, you, it, so the model used clones um, in in its representation for uh, representing higher order contexts um, and and this is also related to our uh, work on cognitive maps where we are mm-hmm. using different clones to represent different contexts so that same idea is also used in rcn um, and instead of temporal uh, thing uh, it was in the context of lateral connections you, you know um, is, is this line part of what different curve, curvatures are a line part of? And representing that in an efficient way uses um, clones in that representation. Um, so uh, and so, so, basically what it means is that um, if you think of these lateral connections as a sequence uh, and, and different, different curvatures are different, different sequences it participates in, then you can mm-hmm. think of it as a, a particular feature um, which is an edge uh, in this case has different clones for participating in these different curvatures, and and uh, that's a very uh, efficient way to represent this higher order uh, lateral context. Um So that's one place in which these clonal neurons come in. And this, if I'm you know going to speculate forward, this might be a general property of uh, how a cortical column represents higher order information uh, using you know cloning. We're basically saying. You you create different clones for the different higher order contexts it is participating in, whether it is um, lateral context uh, based on line continuation, or whether it is sequential context based on you know temporal uh, continuation, or whether it is based on surface uh, properties. Uh, s- some rela- uh, you know, so just using different clones for different contexts might be a general property. That's one one aspect, and there's also another aspect which is basically saying, irrespective of what a cortical column represents. You need to have some basic computations to be done in that cortical column, which is part of inference. Saying, oh, whether it, it doesn't matter whether it is representing line segment or a character or a you know frequency bin, um, you still need to process feedforward information, uh, combine it with feedback information, lateral information, etc. And and those set of computations imply a particular connectivity. And, and those connectivity can be um, wired up front. You don't need to wait for environmental signals to come in to wire them because those computations are irrespective of what the column represents. So that's this idea of uh, establishing some connections a priori in a cortical column.
1: That don't need to be learned. They don't need to go undergo any learning. It's just hardwired. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And, and, and this is also related to the clonal neurons. You know, there are some recent papers uh, which... We cite in uh, our paper showing that um, a lot of vertical wiring in the cortical column can be established a priori and are established a priori, and maybe those synapses will still retain some plasticity, but um, you don't need that um, plasticity to be the one establishing those connections. Mm,
1: yeah, maybe a lower lower sensitivity to to change, perhaps. Correct. Right. I mean, this is in contrast to the lateral connections. Uh, between columns, which um, have uh, in the model uh, a higher learning capacity, learning sensitivity.
0: Correct. Um, Yeah. So the lateral connections are all uh, learned. Um, You know, you can, of course, um, genetically project them to an area where they are more likely to make connections. But the, the specific connections it makes to other cortical columns are learned because the definitions of cortical columns themselves are Learned right, like you know. So whether a cortical column represents an edge or not is not a, it's something knows a priori. So the the lateral connections will depend on what those cortical connections, uh, co- the cortical columns themselves represent. So they they have to be learned.
1: So I mean, this is all about um, one of the things that I love about this. Uh, I've been reading about um, prefrontal cortex. Uh, I, oh, was it passing him in Wise? I don't remember. But the the, the overarching theory of the prefrontal cortex function in their view, is that it's all about context and planning um, actions, but vastly based on the context of multiple different uh, sources of information that are coming in. And that uh, this really fits with that and broadly just these lateral connections because uh, it just makes a lot of sense. I used to make fun of, uh, there was a postdoc that I used to work with and he was all about context and I Used to make fun of him. He's probably much more successful than I am now. But 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 I've come around on it and thinking, wow, it really, really, it really is a fundamentally important thing to do to be able to move through the world uh, is to integrate these different sources of information, and it's all about context. So maybe we can just go through uh, a bit of the the sort of processing, and then this is when we can bring the the thalamus in uh, as well. And you know, of course, this is all detailed in the paper, but. Um, you know, essentially there is a, a feed forward pass, which you already mentioned, and it kind of goes through this sequence of features, laterals, pools, this kind of, kind of cascade. There's also a feedback pass, which is, goes through the reverse of those, uh, features. It cascades in the reverse direction. So it goes pools, laterals, features. And I don't know if you want to comment on the functionality of that.
0: Well, features are detecting co occurrences, uh, Line segments or corners, and uh, laterals are just enforcing continuity between uh, in the in the in you know, a line representations. So contour continuity and pools are uh, pooling for invariance so that the higher level can be more invariant and and that's a structure that is repeated in the hierarchy and um, it's just that it is more formulated as a generative model so that you can sample from the model and um, also pay top down attention control um, uh things the top down attention etc
1: and that's kind of the core of the rcn right so there's this forward pass and then they're in the uh, going to the to the top and then there's the top down attention feedback pass yeah. that then hones in on the correct answer is correct. that the way is that a way to put it okay uh
0: yes um it it is uh, comes iteratively to the the correct answer
1: uh yeah it refines refines the feed uh the, the bottom up projections and refines it into the, the top-down genera- into a generative uh, fashion. Okay. So I'm just stumbling over my words here. Okay, so, so th- that's kind of the core of the RCN. Uh, and now let's bring the, the thalamus in because there's this uh, thalamo cortical pathway, yeah. which you um, describe as explaining away, uh, yeah. where the thalamus is implementing these, um, explaining away these or uh, factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, m- maybe you could describe that. Yeah.
0: So when you are, uh, when you have multiple things modeled, uh, in your, in your model, uh, or in the brain, um, so, you, so you can think of it as each thing you are modeling, whether it is an edge or, uh, whether it is an object, it is specifying how it generates the input. Um, so when you think of an edge, it's basically saying, okay, when I, if I, if I activate this edge feature, It will generate this this set of pixels in the world, Uh, and if it's an A, it's basically specifying if I if I poke this node, it is it will generate these pixels in the world. And now, of course, uh, many of these things are interconnected. If you uh, poke an edge and an adjacent edge, then uh, they will they will overlap in the fields that they generate. Right? They they, some set of pixels um, will be overlapping between an edge and adjacent edge when you Try to generate them, um, and then when when you actually do inference in the real world, you need to find that which subset of these need to be on um, because some of the evidence will be overlapping between them, um, and we have some examples of this happening in CAPTCHAs, where when you look mm-hmm. locally uh, because uh, because of the juxtaposition between these characters, you can you can start seeing uh, characters. In between, the, uh, character, uh, some some of these characters. For example, when you bring an R and N N close to each other, it can look like an M. Um, and uh, um, so, so all the locally the evidence for that character might be very strong. In the in the global parsing of the scene, that evidence is um, just a hallucination and needs to be explained away. And and mm-hmm. so this is you know, this is the core idea called explaining away, which is, which is, which happens in probabilistic graphical models, naturally, if you, if you formulate it the right way. And uh, when you're parsing a scene, yes, you definitely need to explain away local evidence using the global uh, context. Um, and uh, not only that it, it's not a computation that happens just at the, uh, the first level, this needs to happen between every, every level in the hierarchy. So from V1 to V2, uh, from V2 to uh, V4, you need to have these explaining away computations because, uh, we, v- the things that are modeled in V2 also have overlaps in V1 and you need to, uh, you need to explain them away, uh, in a hierarchy. Um, and these explaining away computations exist in, uh, RCN, uh, because it's a, it's a computational requirement. If you want to come to global, uh, consensus, you need to explain away local evidence. So it's, it's something we, had to put in there because that that's the only way to make the model work and then <laughs> when we worked back from that to see where it would fit in this cortical mapping there was no place to fit it other than in the thalamus <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and not only that it it turned out to be a very very good mapping uh to uh-huh. what uh the computations the thalamus is doing and i would say based on this uh, mapping it kind of starting to make sense why it would be implemented in the thalamus and uh, why uh, it is related to other projections to the thalamus etc so, so so basically if you think about what what is explaining away computation does it's gating of feed forward information based on feedback information that's that's fundamentally when you when you look at what is happening in in a um, subset of neurons uh, or or in a node in rcn when you pass messages um, for explaining away it's routing of bottom up evidence based on uh, top down support so uh, if you have if a node has uh, two two parents pointing to it as both both are causal influence on this node being on so uh, a pixel can be on due to parent a or parent b and now Evidence comes in um, from what I'm saying. Oh, th- th- this pixel should be on uh, 0.9. That's a, that's a likelihood of this pixel being on. Now you have to make a decision locally on how to share that piece of evidence among the parents. You should do, should you basically say, oh, 0.9 goes to parent A, or, or 0.9 goes to parent B, or is it a fraction of um, you know half of 0.9 mm-hmm. goes to parent A, or and and this is depends on. How much other support does parent A or parent B have? So if if somebody says parent B, you know, from elsewhere in the network, you know that parent B is the one likely to be on, then you you pass all the evidence to parent B, and they give very little to parent A. So it's it's so it's based on this um, top-down information that you get from these parents on how much support they have from elsewhere in the network. You decide to route this bottom-up information. So that is the fundamental computation that is happening in this explaining away circuit, and that fits very well with what uh, Sherman and Gillery and uh, many other people have found out about the thalamic uh, circuits,
1: like the feedback connections from from layer six in the cortex projecting back to the thalamus. How so? It's almost like a center um, center-on uh, mechanism although it's not um anatomically set up the same way how how is um how is explaining away then related to attention because you're you were saying top down and that that's like an yeah. attentional kind of mechanism is it yeah. attention or how does it relate so attention
0: you can think of it as a very special case of explaining away so this explaining away is a mechanism where the parents can be Kind of half on or half off. They don't have to be full. They don't have to commit to being fully on or fully off. All right, and yeah. and and even then, this computation happens. But now, suppose you you set a parent to be off, or set a parent to be on, then that is hard. Exp- I, I would call it hard explaining away. And uh, so that is attention. So basically, you're saying, oh, I want I want the computations to happen under the assumption that the letter A is on. That that would um, so, so turning that letter uh, yeah on top down will basically change the nature of explaining away computations happening at the at the lower level.
1: So the explaining away is happening anyway, but then the that attention is. can have an effect on top of the explaining away. Exactly. One of the worst, one of the worst times I had coming down off of acid, I was uh, I I was laying in bed trying to sleep and still like my mind couldn't stop you know and I, I saw this like cylindrical green thing made up of almost like minecraft like blocks minecraft Uh didn't exist back then but it like kept spinning and spinning and and kept these blocks kept coming in and adding to it and adding to it it was driving me insane but this what i'm wondering is uh (laughs) first of all what's your worst experience on acid no what i'm wondering is uh, if, if you didn't have these explaining away mechanisms uh my guess is it would be like an acid trip where you where everything is super local and you can't um, sharpen anything, right? You can't have the global features. It's all you can't filter anything out, basically, and everything is present and interacting. How does that sound? Uh,
0: well, that all sounds uh, reasonable. Uh, this is yeah something <laughs> I have to extend the theory to, you know. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, because uh, right, psychedelics are back. You could <laughs> right, maybe right. a therapeutic use for explaining away.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I haven't uh, dwelt much on that one, especially this idea of. <laughs> Feeding uh, the the top-down input back into the network, right? So basically, this is where there is no sensor input. Uh, the, your the eyes are closed, and uh, right. and the system is running on its own. So you you are develop you know generating your top-down input and effectively feeding it back into your uh, uh, net, uh, network. And uh, yeah, that that's you know that is a uh, obviously some amount of mixing of top-down and bottom-up is happening all the time in the network, but uh, where you cut off the, uh, bottom up to- totally and feed it back in. That's something we haven't explored much in detail, but I would, I would love to because of the, uh, g- connections to psychedelics and, uh, or, or <laughs> also because of the, uh, connections to some other, uh, you know, uh, things like, um, uh, schizophrenia or, uh, you know, where, where, where we start mixing what is real versus what is what what is yeah. hallucinated, right? So that would be an interesting direction in which to take this model. Uh, we haven't done anything that, but you know that that is a uh, interesting uh, way to look at it.
1: That is interesting. I I'll have to introduce you to my friend. I have a friend a few states away who's he's growing his own mushrooms, psychedelic like, uh-huh. like mushrooms. He keeps sending me these pictures. You know, I haven't uh-huh. done psychedelics in a long time, but I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll hook you up with okay, him. How about <laughs> that? That's the language of the the kids. Uh, but so, so anyway, these, uh, just bringing it back a moment because, so, so your story then, uh, the story of, of your model here is that these feedback pr- projections from the cortex uh, come on thalamus and uh, have these explaining away mechanisms. Um, and Randy O'Reilly's story is yeah. that the feedback projections, same, same feedback projections, but in this case, they are, they're comparing The prediction the generative prediction with the bottom-up information and yours is as well but in his case it's a story about learning how off the prediction is uh and then that's how plasticity happens within these circuits the 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 difference but the temporal difference between the prediction and the bottom-up gets sent uh and and drives the learning in in cortex and i i don't see a problem for both of these things to be correct I'm not sure how you. That, that, how, what that's you think. right.
0: Um, so I don't see why both can't be correct, and especially in our model, we don't we don't talk about the learning part at all, right? We are we are right. only talking about um, the inference side. Um, you know, once the model is learned, how does inference happen? So um, I won't be surprised if learning involves uh, some mechanism, like uh, Aureli is suggesting there, based on uh, error between the prediction from uh, one layer uh, and the other how the synapses are uh, adapted. Um, I won't be surprised there. Uh, and so they can be both be compatible. But I do want to make a, a contrasting statement between what our model is doing and this generally accepted idea about predictive coding.
1: Uh-huh, yeah.
0: So predictive coding is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a popular word in neuroscience. Uh, and... Uh, it's uh, used everywhere. Every every model is a predictive coding <laughs> model. Uh, That's right. Of, of uh, everything, you That's know. Hippocampus yeah. is a predictive coding model. Uh, you know, visual cortex is a predictive coding model. So this a predi- predictive coding uh, thing is thrown out in, the, in, in, in just just a, a word that is just overused everywhere.
1: It's a bonanza. You could say it's a bonanza these days of right. predictive coding in the yes. literature. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, but when you when you look at what actually predictive coding, uh, if you go back to the literature and uh, look at what predictive coding entails, it's um, so this is during inference, right? We are not talking about learning. This is during inference. Uh, it needs to subtract the top-down input from the bottom-up uh, information. So and then mm-hmm. only the errors between the top-down prediction and the um, and the bottom-up input are passed up. That's actual computation. Um, if uh, if you want to um map what w- that word to an actual computation but that computation uh, of subtracting the top down uh, predictions from bottom up input makes many restrictive assumptions it's basically assuming that um your model is uh, linear and your noise is gaussian and it's only in that setting this subtracting the top down predictions from bottom up input makes sense and uh, i would say this might go back to uh, one of the first papers on predictive coding, which was from, uh, Raj, Rajesh Rao. Uh, this was a nature neuroscience paper. Uh, but then that idea got stuck, uh, basically saying, oh, this idea that you should subtract top down predictions, uh, from bottom up input is the right way to do things that somehow got stuck. Right. Yeah. But it is not, um, what you want to do is combine bottom up input with, uh, top down. You, you, Want to say top-down input influences top-down prediction influences how bottom-up information is sent sent up. But it is not a subtraction. Sometimes it can be uh, an amplification of uh, compatible regions. So if uh, top-down prediction agrees with bottom-up input, you you keep those things around. You pass those up. Where where there is a mismatch, you can kill off the bottom-up input. Um, so so it is. And and it depends on the the particular context in which the computation is happening, whether it is based on top-down attention, whether it is just software explaining away. Uh, so it is a, it's a richer story than just subtract top-down input from uh, bottom-up uh, evidence. Um, and I would call it more, uh, rather than calling it predictive coding, uh, it's probabilistic inference. Uh, what is happening is probabilistic inference of combining um, bottom-up and top-down information. And that can look like subtraction in some settings. It can look like amplification in some other settings. And in reality, it will be a mix of both of those things.
1: Mm. So, so you have the model. And um, it's not just a model. It does things. It accounts for things. And, and you, ta- you go through multiple uh, visual phenomena that it, that it accounts for in, in the paper. And I'll just let you choose. Um, maybe, maybe you can just describe one of the phenomena that it accounts for. And, and just a little bit about how it does so. Yeah.
0: Um, so one of the phenomena uh, that we explain uh, in, and, and replicate in our paper is uh, the subjective contour effect. And subjective contour effect is where uh, you see parts of an object as uh, the bottom of stimuli, uh, but the rest of the object is filled in, top-down, and you actually hallucinate things that do not exist in the real world. And this is the famous Kanitsa triangle example uh, is in the most salient thing I can think of uh, in this uh, category, where what you're seeing bottom up in terms of the real evidence is just these three Pac-Man-like figures, which are the corners of the triangle. But uh, your brain actually hallucinates. You interpret the, the image as a triangle uh, sitting on top of three circular discs. That is your interpretation of the uh, image, and then your brain, uh, in its vast wisdom, actually hallucinates uh, <laughs> as uh, you know the three edges of the triangle. And you, when when you look at this uh, an image like that, you actually perceive a faint line, and that line is not there. Uh, the the faint delineating line is,
1: the triangle, the right, shape of the triangle, right?
0: Yeah, and that faint line is completely created by your brain. Uh, and so this is something that fits very well with the theory because. Uh, this is this hallucinating something that doesn't exist is inference. It's part of inference because that hallucination is part of the best explanation that the brain is you know cooking up for the scene. Um, so, in if you are thinking in terms of cortical columns, uh, yeah. it will basically so you can basically say what happens in the cortical column in that location where there is no bottom-up evidence. That that cortical column is looking at a segment of the uh, portion of the image. Where there is nothing, it's just blank. And then it is hallucinating a line there. So you can think of what happens as part of the dynamics there. When, when bottom up input comes in, uh, layer four neurons will be essentially silent, saying nothing, nothing to see here, a uh, blank image, right? But later on, when the context kicks in and the the, the top down and the lateral context
1: kick in, um, and that 's the the lateral context in this case would be so you 'd have um and correct me if i 'm wrong you 'd have like a receptive field uh for one cortical column or something in that blank spot where there is no line, but yeah. then next to it because it 's a topographical map in in the cortex let's say next to it is the edge of one of those pac man shapes uh and so it 's getting that context that there is this edge near me uh even though i 'm blank and and that 's sort of a feed forward uh pass through with the context right. Correct.
0: And and then yep. it will also be compatible with the, the final decision arrived at the top, which is uh, oh it's a triangle. So there will be top down information saying that, oh, it's a triangle, that means all these columns in between
1: should be on. And at first it's kind of like, oh, I think it might be a triangle uh, oh no and then it goes and goes, Oh, it's a tri it's a tri- it's a triangle. Correct. Right? And then exactly. and then it really clamps it down.
0: Correct. And and so and so you can think of what will happen in, in that cortical column. Initially, it will say, oh, blank, nothing to see here. But then as the lateral uh, context and top-down context gets incorporated, suddenly neurons in this other laminae, which are responsible for representing those aspects of computation of that cortical column, will turn on. And then finally, when you look at the belief of that um, column, it should basically say, oh, I am on. And and, on. Yeah. Uh, and and similarly, the belief neurons in in the outer edges of the Pac-Man, which is the the, the circular parts of the Pac-Man, it should say they're off because uh, you know that's not part of the explanation of the triangle. If you are paying attention only to the triangle, so if you if you basically are clamping the triangle at the top, then the the circular parts of the Pac-Man should turn off, and you should be able to see that in the in the cortical column. So and that's effect- effectively what we are doing. What we are doing is virtual neurophysiology. It's it's almost like we we have a uh, functioning monkey in the lab, and we can show it stimuli <laughs> and uh, basically record from different different layers and uh, and and show this is how uh, information settles and this is how it arrives at the final answer. And you can extend this to um, not just um, the Kanitzer triangle um, explanations and subjective contours explanation. In our model, mostly uses. Just the contour model, but you can also extend it to an illusion called the neon color spreading illusion, which also mm-hmm. is it's a it's a um, two-layered illusion. You, there are subjective contours in it uh, because it is hallucinating edges. Um, not only that, it's also hallucinating the color inside the the circle, uh, and and well, and it's interesting that the color hallucination respects the hallucinated edges the, the color doesn't bleed right. out of the edges <laughs> so right. Uh, uh, right. so it is it is um um it's interesting in that way and uh and um so we can replicate the dynamics of that too and uh, hopefully it's also making some predictions about how that illusion also comes into effect
1: uh, this reminds me of so S- steve grossberg has work on this sort of color spreading uh and respecting Correct. the boundaries of the, of the neon thing as well and it's it looks like it's uh you know along the same lines um, yes. explanatorily. Yes. Um, I I, I, while you were talking, I was just thinking about like the Necker cube and, there, and these phenomena where your conscious uh, experience of something switches, right, on this slow time scale. Yes. Have you thought about that and how that might fit into the model? Yes,
0: uh, we have actually. In fact, uh, we have several examples like that in, uh, in the lab at uh, Vicarious where uh, cool. In, in okay. fact, precisely the Necker cube uh, one uh, oh. we have we have created uh, that one and and replicated it just did not get it into the uh, paper and yeah, so there's Necker cube one, the face was solution uh, yeah, of, yeah so
1: so um, there are a few of them yeah yeah, a handful yeah of them like that. right yeah. and
0: and and uh, you can make them flip by just randomly perturbing the network, or you could also even see uh because we have full access to the model, you can also see. Which nodes should I perturb? If you, if you want to do the minimum amount of perturbation, which nodes in the network should I perturb so that I, I flip the, um, illusion, uh, flip the explanation to the other, other, uh, uh, other thing. Um, so yeah, those are, uh, fascinating illusions to play with, uh, because they are all, uh, I would say results
1: of doing inference on a, on a model. To the inference to the be- best explanation. Yeah. Right. Dalit, this is great stuff, uh, as always. I, I mean, you must be very confident in in the model. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, a, a healthy, let's say, a healthy sceptics <laughs> confidence, perhaps. That's you know? right.
0: Yeah, you don't yeah. want to be uh, too confident. <laughs> you, uh, uh, yeah, my philosophy is that you want to be the the uh, most sceptical about your own your your own model because you. Uh, I mean, I'm. Only you can be because you know what works and uh, all the nitty gritties of what works and what uh, doesn't work, right? And uh, I mean, it's it's in the right direction, I would say. Uh, there are so many things to be worked on and improved and uh, some fundamental problems to be fixed. Uh, and we will be tackling all of those as we go. But I would say the, the general direction in which we are going, I am very confident about that.
1: Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's the uh, Richard Feynman quote right that the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool so it sounds like you have that uh, right attitude yeah, yeah. <laughs> when is when, when are we going to see this thing published in uh, nature it's on what archive <laughs> right now right yeah or, um
0: uh, we still have to uh do a little bit more work uh, <laughs> for cleaning it up and uh, submit so we haven't submitted it yet um, so oh, you
1: haven't okay no uh,
0: so we yeah so i hope to submit it in in the coming month so if you have feedback, I can I can use it. And if any of you any of your listeners have feedback, uh, I can use it before submitting, and maybe it will help uh, smooth the process.
1: Oh, wonderful! All right, so there you go, listeners. Deleep has put the call out for uh, feedback. So, Dilip, um thanks again. So, if if we if uh, we keep this current trajectory i'm not sure this if it follows like a power law distribution of our uh podcast rate but i'm i'm pretty sure that we should have another episode in a, uh, probably about 2 hours from now um, <laughs> might be a little bit longer <laughs> than that but it's but it's always fun and i really appreciate you coming <laughs> yeah. on and i wish you success going forward of course
0: uh, uh thanks Paul. it is it is always uh, fun to be on this one and uh, no i don't intend to come back in the next 2 hours now uh, I, <laughs> I think i have talked too much i need to go and uh, uh, get some work done
1: that's what i should do (laughs) great happy working my friend take Uh, care thank you brain inspired is a production of me and you i don't do advertisements you can support the show through patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side, but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time.